Okay, so section four, necessity of a synthesis between the major and minor modes of access to techniques in the domain of education. The separation between, between the education of the adult and the education of the child in the area of technology corresponds to a difference in structure between the two normative systems and to a certain extent, a difference between the results. As a consequence, a gap remains between pedagogical technology and encyclopedic technology that has, not, that has yet to be bridged. Encyclopedic technological education aims at giving the adult the feeling that he is a fulfilled, entirely alive being in full possession of his means and his forces, an image of the individual man in his state of real maturity. The necessary condition of this feeling is the universality of knowledge in theory and in practice. And yet within encyclopedic learning, there remains something that is abstract and an irreducible lack of universality. The material combination of all technical devices within a technological volume that assembles and coordinates them according to an order of simultaneity or reason neglects the temporal, successive, quantic aspect of the discoveries that have led to the current state. One grasps all at once and in actuality what is progressively constructed, what is slowly and successively elaborated. The idea of progress, or rather what is mythical about it, comes from this illusion of simultaneity, which presents as a fixed state what is merely a stage. By excluding historicity, encyclopedism introduces man to the possession of a possession of a false entelechy, because this stage is still rich in virtuality. There is no determinism that presides over invention, and where progress is thought as being continuous, it masks the very reality of invention. The autodidactism is tempted to bring everything back to the present, the past insofar as he assembles it within his present knowledge in the future, to the extent that he considers it as necessarily flowing in a continuous manner from the present through the intermediary of progress. What the autodidact lacks is having been raised in a progressive way, which is to say, having become an adult through a temporal series of developments that are structured by crises determining and enabling the passage to another phase. The historicity of technical coming into being must be grasped through the historicity of the subjects coming into being, so as to add the order of succession to the order of simultaneity, according to a form that is time. A genuine encyclopedism, which demands a temporal universality at the same time as a universality of simultaneity, must integrate the education of the child. It can only become truly universal if it makes an adult by means of the child, by following the temporal universality so as to obtain a universality of simultaneity. What must be discovered is the continuity between the two forms of universality. So he's beginning um, by setting up this contrast between uh, pedagogical technology and encyclopedic technology. Um, so he's first um, setting out this encyclopedic technology um, and uh, what it lacks is the um, sense of progress or temporal development in um, Indy. Uh, so uh, because it represents uh, the state of technical knowledge uh, in simultaneity, it doesn't, um, uh, doesn't grasp the temporal progress of the individual um, as a, a student or as a, as a child learning about technical reality. And it, uh, at the same time, it doesn't represent the um, progressive development of technology through history. So would someone else like to read the next paragraph? No volunteers? Uh, sure, I can. Uh, inversely, non-technological education lacks the universality of simultaneity. This is what is meant when one says that it sets its sights on culture rather than knowledge. But any enterprise that aims to obtain culture by ridding itself of knowledge would be illusory, because the encyclopedic order of knowledge is a part of culture. And yet, 
the encyclopedic order of knowledge can only be seen in an abstract and consequently non-cultural way if it is seen outside of knowledge itself. A representation of knowledge without knowledge itself can only occur if it is grasped through an external symbol, as is the case, for instance, in the mythical and socialized representation of men who embody knowledge. Knowledge itself is then replaced by the figure of the scholar, which is to say a cataloged element of social or characterological typology, which is totally inadequate to knowledge itself, and introduces a mystification into culture, making it inauthentic. At best, knowledge can be replaced by an opinion, a biography, a character trait, or a description of the personality of a scholar. But these are, once again, totally inadequate elements, because they do not introduce knowledge, but rather an idolatry of the human basis of knowledge, which is not of the order of knowledge itself. There is more authentic culture in the gesture of a child who reinvents a technical device than in a text where Chateaubriand describes the terrifying genius of Blaise Pascal. We are closer to invention when we seek to understand the cog-wheeled adding device used in Pascal's calculating machine, arithmetic machine, than when we read the most oratorical passages relating to Pascal's genius. To understand Pascal is to reconstruct a machine identical to his with one's own hands without copying it even transposing it where possible to an electronic adding machine so as to have to reinvent it by way of actualizing it rather than reproducing Blaze's intellectual and operational schemas. To cultivate oneself is to actualize human schemas analogically, paying scant attention to the stir that this or that invention or publication caused among its contemporaries, which is inessential, or at the very least cannot be grasped other than with reference to an original thought to invention itself. Right, so he's introduced that contrast, and we saw um, the first side of the contrast, the encyclopedic uh, technological education, and then now he's looking at the other side, the, um, the non-technological education, uh, which um, instead of uh, inculcating knowledge, it, it sets up this figure of the scholar as the one who has the knowledge, um, and then knowledge becomes an attribute of this other person rather than something that um, that we ourselves can can possess. All right, I think that's fairly uh, straightforward. So we can go on to the next paragraph if someone would like to read. I can do some. Can y'all hear me? Yep. It is regrettable that a cultured people in the last year of secondary school knows Descartes' vortices only through Belize's simpering, and the state of astronomy in the 17th century through that great long frightful spyglass that Chrysalis cannot stand. This indicates a lack of seriousness, a lack of truth in thought, which has no right to be presented as culture. Such evocations would have their place if they could be situated with respect to their real source, which would be grasped first, and not through the Phariseism fer, fer, of a work of art that has other objectives besides culture. The encyclopedic order of simultaneity is expelled from cultural education because it does not conform to the opinions of social groups, which never contain a representation of the order of simultaneity because all they represent is a minimal fraction of life in a determined epoch, and they cannot situate themselves on their own. This hiatus between contemporary life, contemporary, contemporary, ah, contemporary life and culture comes from 
the alienation of culture, which is to say from the fact that culture in reality is an initiation into the opinions of, a of determinate social groups having existed in previous epochs. The primacy of literature and cultural education comes from this omnipotence of opinion, a work over, over, I can never say that word, in particular, a work that has survived is in fact a work that has expressed the ethics of a group or of an epoch wherein this group could recognize itself. A literary culture is thus enslaved to these groups. It is at the level of these groups of the past. A literary work is a social witness. The entire share of didactic works is eliminated from culture unless it is ancient and can be considered as a witness to the didactic genre. Contemporary culture feigns to consider the didactic genre as something extinct, when perhaps never before has there been as much expressive force, as much art, as much human presence in scientific and, and technical writings. It is really culture that has now become a genre with its fixed rules and norms. It has lost its sense of universality. All right, so... Um... He's pointing, I think this is a sort of a specifically French um, um, sort of cultural education or, or um, um, form of culture um, that he's sort of referring to here, but it's the idea of a literary education. Um, um, you know, someone being cultured means that they you know, um, have an acquaintance with, you know, classical literary works, um, but um, that same culturedness or cultivation doesn't uh, require any uh, scientific or technical knowledge. Uh, and in fact, it ex excludes this uh, um, encyclopedic uh, scientific and technical knowledge. Um, so it's, it um, uh, integrates or initiates the, the student or the, the child into um, this social grouping uh, through opinion, but it doesn't um, uh, inculcate knowledge in the child uh, so it doesn't uh, integrate them into this encyclopedic tradition of knowledge. Okay, I can read the next uh, section. Therefore, education, in order for it to be fully educational, lacks human dynamisms. Considering in particular the technical aspect of this education and of encyclopedism, it is plain to see that it constitutes a mediator of great value, since it has aspects that make it accessible to the child and others that adequately symbolize the successive stages of scientific knowledge. The stumbling block that cultural education runs up against when it wants to become encyclopedic is the difficulty attached to wanting to understand this science merely on the basis of discursive intellectual symbols. Technical realization, on the contrary, provides the scientific knowledge that serves as its principle of functioning in the form of a dynamic intuition that can even be apprehended by a young child and which is susceptible to becoming more and more elucidated, doubled by a discursive form of comprehension. Truly discursive knowledge admits no degrees. It is either immediately perfect or false because it is inadequate. Through techniques, encyclopedism could thus find its place in the education of the child without requiring capacities for abstraction, which the young child does not fully have at its disposal. In this sense, the child's acquisition of technical knowledge can initiate an intuitive encyclopedism, grasped through the nature of the technical object. The technical object, in fact, distinguishes itself from the scientific object because the scientific object is an analytical object, which aims at analyzing a unique effect in all its most precise conditions and characteristics. Whereas the technical object, far from being situated in its entirety within the context of a particular science, 
is in fact at a point of concurrence of a multitude of data and scientific effects coming from the most varied domains, integrating what appears to be the most heterotype forms of knowledge, savoir, and which can in some cases not be coordinated intellectually, while they are indeed coordinated practically in the functioning of the technical object. It has been said that the technical object is the result of the art of compromise. What is, is indeed an eminently synthetic structure, which cannot be understood in any other way than through the induction of a synthetic schematism that presides over invention. The technical schema, which is a relation between several structures and a complex operation taking place through these structures, is by its very nature encyclopedic, since it leads to a circularity of knowledge, a synergy of elements uh, of knowledge that are still theoretically heterogeneous. So he's, here he's proposing uh, the idea of technical education as um, a sort of intermediary that will introduce the child into scientific knowledge. So uh, the child doesn't have the capacity for um, uh, grasping uh, abstract science or uh, abstract schemas of thought uh, that are used in science, but through um, technical learning, uh, uh, learning about technical reality, uh, the child can uh, learn scientific principles and uh, be uh, initiated into this encyclopedic knowledge because uh, each uh, technical object incorporates um, phenomena that have to do with different domains of science. It's not uh, limited to one domain of science. Uh, so uh, yeah, so the technical um, sphere uh, it serves as an intermediary and leads the child into um, the, the, the realm of scientific knowledge. I think it's it's interesting uh, the line that he designates the technical object from the scientific object um, as being the scientific object being analytical versus encyclopedic. I think this is very interesting. Um, has he has he referred to the scientific object before this in these terms? And I'm and I just have looked over it, or um, is this? the first time that he's mentioned the scientific object. Uh, I don't think he's explicitly um, sort of pointed to the scientific object, but there was a passage um, uh, in the first section, or the first part, sorry, of the of the book, where he, um, he talks about how uh, technical objects can be studied as scientific objects, um, uh, sorry, concrete technical objects can be studied as scientific objects because they um, incorporate a variety of different effects um, and uh, um, yeah so you can you can sort of set it up as an object of study in the same way that you would study um, a natural phenomenon uh, so um, I think this is the same or, or sorry, uh, a related idea here um, is that in uh, uh, in scientific study, when you set up a scientific object as um, you try to isolate it as much as possible and uh, um, sort of reduce it to one particular sphere of, uh, of reality. So you want, you're studying, I don't know, magnetism, whatever it is, you want to isolate everything except for the magnetic effects um, in the object. Um, whereas in technical reality, uh, all the different effects will be um, interacting with each other and going on at the same time and uh, contributing towards the overall functioning of the technical object. So that's, that's the, the contrast that he's setting up here. Okay, so who would like to read the next paragraph? I can go again. 
perhaps it should be noted that until the 20th century, technics were incapable of assuming this relation between the encyclopedic work and the culture given to the child. For indeed, it was almost impossible at the time to find within technics truly universal operations, including the schematisms of sensation or of thought. Today, the existence of a technics of information gives technology an infinitely greater universality. Information theory places technology at the center of a large number of diverse sciences, such as physiology, logic, aesthetics, phonetic or grammatical study, and even the semantics of language, numerical calculus, geometry, the organization of groups and of regimes of authority, the calculus of probability, and all the techniques of transport of spoken, acoustic, or visual information. Information theory is an interscientific theory that enables the systematization of scientific concepts as such as this, uh, as much as, sorry, uh, the systematization of scientific concepts as much as the systematization of the schematisms of various techniques. Information theory mustn't be considered as a technics among techniques. In reality, it is a thinking that acts as a mediator or as mediator between the various techniques on the one hand, between the various sciences on the other, and finally between the sciences and techniques. It can play this role because there are relations between the sciences that are not only theoretical, but also instrumental and technical, each science being capable of making use of a certain number of other sciences for its own benefit, which it uses as technical sources in order to carry out the effect it studies. A technical relation takes place between the sciences. Technics, moreover, can be theorized in a scientific form. Information theory intervenes as a science of technics and as a technics of the sciences determining a reciprocal state of these exchange functions. It is at this level and at this level only that encyclopedism and technical education can meet within a coherence of two simultaneous and successive orders of universality. All right, so he's um, pointing here to the existence of information theory as this um, mediating uh, field. Um, so between between different sciences uh, with each other, between different uh, spheres of, of technical reality with each other, and then also between science and technical reality uh, together. Um, and so this um, this role of technics as um, and technical education that as uh, initiating a child into encyclopedic knowledge or scientific knowledge that, that he pointed to in the last paragraph is only possible because of the development of uh, information theory as this um, um, so he says the, the techniques of science and the science of techniques. Um, so it's this sort of double or, or, or mediating rule um, between all the different spheres of technical and scientific knowledge um, that, uh, that makes possible that, that form of education. And would someone else like to read the next paragraph? Yeah, I can go to the next one. We can thus say that if, uh, if to this day techniques could only provide two different to reconcile dynamisms, one of which is geared towards the adult and the other towards the child, with information theory, then this antagonism today gives a way to a mediating discipline that establishes continuity between specialization and encyclopedism, between the education of the child and that of the adult. What is thereby founded is a reflexive technology above and beyond that different techniques. And what is thereby defined is a thinking that creates a relation between the science and techniques. Should I continue? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. 
The consequence of this reflexive unification of techniques and the end of the opposition between theoretical knowledge and practical knowledge for the reflexive conception of men is considerable. Once this level has been teached, there is effectively no longer a hiatus or an antagonism between the time of education and adulthood. In the order of succession and the order of simultaneity organize uh, themselves in a relation of reciprocity. <coughs> reciprocity. And adulthood is no longer antagonistic with respect to that of education. To a certain extent, even the evolution of society stuck up until now on a determinism of youth, then of maturity, and finally of old age. Along with the political and social regimes cor corresponding to each, can no longer be conceived as fatal if the penetration of techniques is deep enough to introduce a system of references and values that are independent of this implicit biologism. Right, so um, he's, uh, he introduces this idea of a reflexive technology. So again, remember that uh, technology here means the, the study of technical realities, not, not the technical reality themselves um, it, itself. Um, so this reflexive technology is so it's a technology that um, is a, a thinking of the relation between science and techniques. Um, so this information theory uh, is the sort of foundation of this reflexive technology, um, and it allows um, it allows us to overcome this uh, um, separation between theoretical and practical knowledge, um, and uh, to to sort of and overcome this uh, antagonism between uh, childhood and adulthood, or or you know the the sphere in which you learn um, through this progressive uh, introduction into knowledge or um, initiation into culture on the one hand, and then um, the sphere of simultaneous encyclopedic knowledge on the other. So it, it overcomes that antagonism. Uh, hello. Uh, I'd like to um, make a small contribution here. Uh, so. Uh, I think uh, I'm not entirely sure what he means by information theory because earlier he used the word cybernetics. So I'm not sure whether we should understand something distinct from cybernetics proper or something closely involved with it. But anyway, uh, I think pretty much around the same time or at least uh, 20 years uh, later, uh, Seymour Popper, uh, he is uh, working uh, at the juncture between uh, psychological development and computer science. So he is very attentive to uh, children picking up on uh, computer scientific themes. Uh, he also brought up this issue of a certain reconciliation between, uh, let's say, concrete and uh, a formal education. On the one hand, uh, something that was previously particular to uh, children's education, and on the other hand, something formal and what Simon Don would call encyclopedic. So I find it interesting. I think uh, what they share is a certain reference to the work of Jean Piaget, uh, this developmental psychologist. Right. Uh, could you just put the names in the in the chat, um, just so for future reference, if someone wants to look up more information. Sure. Yeah, that's uh, it's an interesting um, 
uh, connection to make. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I know uh, Simondon does reference Piaget at some points, um, um, but I'm not sure whether or not he's uh, he's pointing to that here um, or or just to the the idea of um, you know pedagogy and um, you know development in general. Um, it'd be interesting. I, mean, I don't I don't know Piaget's work very well, um, so it'd be interesting to. Uh, you know, someone who who knows him better to uh, to look at this section and um, you know see to what extent uh, there's a, a sort of direct connection. Okay, I can read the uh, the last uh, paragraph of the uh, section. A careful analysis of dualisms and value systems, such as those between the manual laborer and the intellectual, the peasant and the citizen, the child and the adult would show that underneath these oppositions, there is a technical reason for the incompatibility between several groups of schematisms. The manual laborer is the one who lives according to an intuitive schematism at the level of material things. The intellectual, on the contrary, is the one who has conceptualized the sensible qualities. He lives in accordance with an order that stabilizes the order of succession by way of definitions of nature and the destiny of man. He holds a certain power of conceptualizing and of valorizing or devaluing human gestures and values lived at the level of intuition. The manual laborer lives according to the order of simultaneity. He is an autodidact when he wants to gain access to a culture. It is according to the same difference between schematisms that the man of the countryside is opposed to the city dweller. The man of the countryside is contemporary with a set ensemble of requirements and participations that make him a being who is integrated into a natural system of existence. His tendencies and his intuitions are the links of this integration. The city dweller is an individual being linked to a social coming into being rather than to a natural order. He is the opposite of the man of the countryside in the way that an abstract and cultivated being is the opposite of an integrated and uncultivated being. The city dweller is of a time, whereas the man of the countryside is of a place or region. The former integrates himself into the order of succession, the latter into the order of simultaneity. The attachment to traditions by the man of the countryside is generally what is noted, but tradition is precisely the most unconscious aspect of historicity, which masks the representations of the successive order, which supposes an invariance of succession. Real traditionalism is based on the absence of a representation of the series of coming into being. This coming into being is repressed. In the end, the opposition between the child and the adult summarizes these antagonisms. The child is the being of succession, made of virtualities, modifying himself in time and being aware of this modification and of this change. The adult, capable of facing the simultaneity of problems that life confronts him with because of his education, integrates himself into society according to the order of simultaneity. However, this maturity can only be fully achieved to the extent that society is stable and is not evolving too rapidly. Otherwise, society that is in the process of transforming itself in privileging the order of succession communicates a dynamism to its adult members that turns them into adolescents. So he's using the same um, uh, opposition between simultaneity and succession here um, to characterize the uh, the city dweller and the the country dweller. Um, uh, so the the city dweller is uh, sort of integrated into um, uh, succession and uh, what he calls coming into being. So you know changes in in technology um, or sorry changes in, in technical reality, changes in in fashion, um, whatever. All these the different things that um, are constantly changing in the city. Um, whereas the country life is. Um, um, characterized as being static uh, or um, the changes are, are um, sort of repressed 
um, and uh, they are not made conscious. Yeah, so this is, I mean, um, I think we can uh, uh, question to what extent this is, um, uh, um, you know, a valid characterization of the difference between country and city life, um, you know, whether, um, whether city life is characterized by this um, uh, succession or, and whether the countryside is characterized by this uh, traditionalism. Um, I think that's something that's open to question, um, especially uh, today, uh, you know, in the, in the last, uh, what, the 30, 50 years when there's been huge uh, movements of people from the countryside to the city. Um, it's hard to um, make the same uh, dichotomy as perhaps in 1958 or um, whenever he was writing this. I really like the line, um, the manual laborer lives according to the order of simultaneity. He is an autodidact when he wants to gain access to a culture. I find that to be really interesting. And this whole paragraph is actually fascinating and like it makes me want to diagram it or something. See the, um, the urban versus rural distinction mapped between, um, and, the, and the way that this, this um, could could map to kind of educational categories as well is really interesting. I wish I knew more about the the kind of transition of <clears throat> of education and especially in France, excuse me. In the um in the kind of I think the I guess the mid 20th century there was a kind of like um there was like I don't know what it's called like Ecole Nouvelle or something like that. Um, some kind of like new new school. Is that what it's called? I don't know. There's going to some kind of um, specific kind of history to this, especially in, in France that I'm, I'm less than completely familiar with, but probably should be more so. I guess I just wanted to say that, that the whole countryside versus, versus um, city kind of difference kind of reminds me of a lot of the the Heideggerian kind of um, nationalistic kind of stuff with uh, the kind of imagery of the rural sort of. Um, and I'm, this is kind of a fascinating paragraph kind of coming from just reading Heidegger related stuff as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you, you bring up Heidegger um, because uh, um, like in Heidegger, it's always there's always the valorization of um, you know the peasant life or or rural life and and uh, tradition um, and uh, technology or or technical reality is always um, sort of devalued. Um, it's it's seen as something that is uh, um, uh, you know destructive of of tradition and so on. Um, whereas for Simon Don, he he doesn't really seem to be setting up any sort of uh, value um, hierarchy between these two. Uh, modes of life they they both have you know their their own um their own set of values uh, their own um uh reality i guess you could say um and there's no um basis outside of one or the other to choose to choose to prefer one over the other all right so that's the end of chapter one um so part part two, chapter one. Uh, so we can go on to uh, chapter two. Uh, I'm not sure how far we'll get, but we'll um, try to get through a, um, a couple sections. Um, so I can start us off. 
um, chapter two, the regulative function of culture in the relation between man and the world of technical objects, current problems. Section one, the different modalities of the notion of progress. The encyclopedist's attitude towards techniques can be considered an enthusiasm roused by the discovery of the technicity of the elements. Machines are not, in fact, directly considered automata by the encyclopedists. Rather, they are considered an assemblage of elementary devices. Diderot's co collaborators directed their attention essentially to the organs of machines. In the 18th century, the technical ensemble was still at the, at the scale of the cork cutter's workshop or that of the scale makers. This ensemble links up with technical elements through the intermediary of the craftsman who uses tools or machine tools, rather, rather than through the intermediary of veritable technical individuals. The division of subjects for study is consequently made according to rubrics of utilization and not according to schemas of techniques, i.e. according to types of machines. The principle in grouping and analyzing technical beings is the denomination of the trade rather than that of the machine. Very different trades, however, can make use of identical or almost identical tools. This principle of grouping thus leads to a certain superfluity of the presentation of tools and instruments, which from one illustration to the next can be closely related forms. So this is a, a theme that he's introduced earlier, um, the idea that uh, in 18th century um, technical technical uh, reality, the the level of technicity was at or technicity was at the level of uh, the elements, the technical elements, uh, so tools essentially, um, and it was the human being that served as the the technical individual um, that uh, that uh, handles the tools and and uses them. Um, and it's only in in the 19th century that you begin to have machines. Um, which which stand at the, at the level of the technical individual, so the machines that um, operate tools uh, and that replace the human uh, craftsman or or uh, artisan. So there there's kind of two eras of of encyclopedism. There's kind of like the Diderot encyclopedism, and then um, a kind of more more recent encyclopedism is that a distinction he's making or yeah yeah sorry he actually um in an earlier in uh, the last uh, chapter he made a distinction between three um eras of encyclopedias encyclopedism um so yeah there's the the 18th century um encyclopedia um and then there's um uh yeah i believe it was the um later in the 19th century um and then uh, he he's pointing to uh, a new era of encyclopedism developing at at his time with the introduction of cybernetics. Yeah, so so there's these three eras of, of encyclopedism um, that uh, that integrate different um, levels of technical reality. All right, I guess Diderot Diderot's level would be the the middle level, the Enlightenment era. Is that correct? Or is he he's not the Renaissance era, the first. The first encyclopedic era. I'm I'm trying to figure out. I guess I guess. Yeah. Pretty, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. You're right. It was the Renaissance was the first one, and then the the 18th century was the second one, and it was only um, the third one is is only um, developing in the 20th century. Cool. Um. Should I should I go on with the next paragraph, or does anyone else have any comments? Yeah. The principle of grouping according to technical ensembles comprised of an indefinite plurality of elements, however, 
is linked very closely to the idea of continuous progress, such as it existed for the encyclopedists. It is when technicity is grasped at the level of elements that technical evolution can occur according to a continuous line. There is a correlation between a molecular mode of the existence of technicity and a continuous pace of the evolution of technical objects. Gears and screw threads were cut better in the 18th century than in the 17th century. From this comparison between the same elements made in the 17th and in the 18th century arose the idea of the continuity of progress as a forward march in what we have called the concretization of technical objects. The evolution of this element, which takes place within already constituted technical ensembles, does not provoke any upheaval. It improves the results of fabrication without brutality and authorizes the craftsman to preserve habitual methods while experiencing the feeling of facilitation at work. The habitual gestures, better served by more precise instruments, now yield better results. The optimism of the 18th century is to a large extent based on the elementary and continuous improvement of the conditions of technical work. Anxiety effectively arises from those transformations that provoke a break within the rhythms of everyday life, making the old habitual gestures useless. But the improvement of the tool's technicity plays a euphoric role. When man, while preserving the fruit of his training, exchanges an old tool for a new tool whose manipulation is the same, he has the feeling of having more precise, skillful, and rapid gestures. It is the entire corporeal schema that expands against his limitations, that dilates and frees itself. The impression of awkwardness diminishes. The trained man feels more skillful with a better tool. He has greater self-confidence, for the tool is an extension of the organ and is carried by the gesture. Right, I think this um, is also a theme that he's uh, developed earlier or alluded to earlier, uh, the idea that um, technical development at the level of the elements is continuous. Um, it's uh, you know, a constant improvement of uh, whether it's screws or, or blades or gears or whatever it is. Um, and uh, this form of continuous development um, uh, sort of underlies the, the um, the ideology of, of progress and optimism that characterizes the 18th century um, understanding of technology. Um, so yeah, there's this uh, continuous evolution of the technical reality and it um, uh, creates or, or accompanies this um, optimism of uh, an ideology of progress. Okay, would someone else like to read the next paragraph? Sure, go again. Uh, the 18th century was the pivotal moment for the development of tools and instruments. Uh, if by tool, one understands the technical object enabling one to prolong and arm the body in order to accomplish a gesture. And by instrument, the technical object that enables one to prolong and adapt the body in order to achieve better perception. The instrument is a tool of perception. Some technical objects are both tools and instruments, but they can be called uh, tools or instruments according to the predominance of their active function or of their perceptive function. A hammer is a tool, even though through, through the receptors of kinesthetic and vibratory tactile sensitivity, we can subtly perceive the instant when the nail starts to writhe or to split the wood and penetrate it too fast. The hammer must effectively act on the tip so as to drive it in, so that according to the manner in which this operation of driving in the tip is executed, 
definite information is communicated to the senses of the one who holds the hammer in his hand. The hammer is thus first a tool, since it is a result of its tool function that it can serve as an instrument. Even when the hammer is used as a pure instrument, it is still primarily a tool. The mason recognizes the quality of a stone with his hammer, but for this to happen, the hammer must first partially chip away at the stone. Conversely, a telescope or a microscope are instruments in the same manner as a level or a sextant are. These objects serve to collect information without accomplishing any prior action on the world. And the 18th century is the age in which both tools and instruments were made with greater care, reaping the rewards of 17th century discoveries within static and dynamic mechanics, as well as those found in geometrical and physical optics. The undeniable progress of the sciences was translated into the progress of technical elements. This accord between scientific investigation and technical consequences is a new reason for optimism that adds itself to the content of the notion of progress through the spectacle of the synergy and its fecundity of the domains of human activity, the instruments improved by the sciences are at the service of scientific investigation. All right, so here he's, he, uh, so he introduces this distinction between, um, or he explains this distinction between tools and instruments, but um, um, it's not that important for the rest of the developments, I don't think. Um, but the, the idea is that um, there's a second um, basis for the, uh, the ideology of uh, progress and optimism in that um, uh, not only is there this continuous development of, um, of the, the elements, of technical elements, but also you have the impact of scientific research onto technical development in, in the production of better, um, better tools and instruments, which in turn uh, is a, uh, applied to scientific research again in a sort of a virtuous circle. Okay, I'll go on to the next paragraph. The aspect of technical evolution changes on the contrary when the birth of complete technical individuals is encountered in the 19th century. As long as these individuals merely replace animals, the perturbation is not a frustration. The steam engine replaces the horse in hauling wagons. It drives the spinning mill. Gestures are modified to a certain extent, but man is not replaced insofar as the machine simply provides a greater utilization of energy sources. The encyclopedists were familiar with the windmill, which they magnified and represented as dominating the landscape from the height of its tall, silent structure. Several extremely detailed illustrations are dedicated to new and improved water mills. Man's frustration starts with the machine that replaces man, with the automatic weaving loom, with the forging press, with the equipment of the new factories. What the worker destroys during a riot are the machines, because they are his rivals. The machine is no longer simply an engine, but a bearer of tools. 18th century progress left the human being intact because the human individual remained a technical individual among his tools of which he was both the center and bearer. It is not necessarily through its size that the factory distinguishes itself from the craftsman's workshop, but through the, the change in relation between the technical object and the human being. The factory is a technical ensemble that is comprised of automatic machines whose activity is parallel to that of human activity. The factory uses true technical individuals, whereas in the workshop, it is man who lends his individuality to, to the accomplishment of technical actions. From then on, the most positive, most direct aspect of the first notion of progress is no longer experienced, equally. The progress of, 18th of the 18th century is a progress experienced by an individual through the force, speed, and precision of his gestures. The progress of the 19th century can no longer be experienced by the individual because it is no longer centralized with the individual as the center of command and perception in the adopted action. The individual becomes the mere spectator of the results of the functioning of the machines 
or the one who is responsible for the organization of technical ensembles, putting the machines to work. This is, this is why the notion of progress splits in two, becomes aggressive, ambivalent, and a source of anxiety. Progress is at a remove from man and no longer makes sense for the individual because the conditions of the individual's intuitive perception of progress no longer exist. This implicit judgment, which is very close to that of kinesthetic impressions and to the facilitation of a corporeal dynamism, which formed the basis of the notion of progress in the 18th century, disappears, except within domains of activity in which the progress of the sciences and of techniques provides, as in the 18th century, an extension and facilitation of individual conditions of action and observation, as, in, as is the case with medicine and surgery. I'm sometimes uh, obliged to teach a kind of intro to technology studies or a kind of sociology of technology. Uh, and I, 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 I'm struck by this material that it's like, it's very, uh, it's very phenomenological and sort of genealogical at the same time. It's kind of like, um, we, we kind of bat around this word, this concept of technological determinism. And here, I think he's really kind of cracking open the history of that in this very succinct way that it's, it's very appealing to me. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that the that 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 pull between determinacy and and technological progress too is kind of interesting. It's kind of um, this. I um I don't have any really extended comment, but I I also think this is really interesting kind of pedagogical route when it, when we're talking about um, um, technolo technologies, uh, the kind of evolution of technology. It's, it's interesting. That was like a completely an absent comment of any information. I'm sorry. No, it's good. It's good. I mean, more. I guess the point is that, like, for me, it's become quite ahistorical to just say, uh, to to basically introduce students to the concept of progress by way of this concept of technological determinism. And it really, it's been emptied of a lot of its historic, its sort of concrete historical content. And moreover, a kind of it's been emptied out of of this specifically technical dynamic, right? So it just for me, it, it puts me in mind to like be more. After reading these passages, I'm definitely going to be more sensitive about it the next time I talk about it, for sure. Yeah, I think it's also interesting in the, um, he doesn't sort of explicitly um, lay out a theory here, but he's, he's um, I guess, presupposing an idea of um, the way ideological, um, the ideolo ideological sphere is um, determined by this lived experience of uh, technology. So, um, the difference between the 18th and the 19th century um, ideologies of, of the technical um, is is uh, brought about by the difference between uh, the lived experience of the, the 18th of technical reality in the 18th and the 19th century. Um, so it'd be interesting to um, sort of draw that out a little bit more than he does here. Yeah, to do so, especially in the context of information theory, like the way that you know, internet technologies and digital technologies, network technologies, because they are so reliant upon information theory at, at the sort of guts of their, of how they function as technical elements, and then how we gain a sense of feeling progressive in the context of that specific, so both the encyclopedism and the concrete experience of technical elements. I think that's like, there's, you could get a lot out of sort of, you know, ex, like you're saying, sort of extrapolate from these con from this context into the 21st century would be, I think, fruitful. Yeah, if someone wants to write that paper, I'd be very interested to read it. I, uh, I, I tried to look at some stuff on information theory and um, it, the mathematics is beyond my my ability to to work with, unfortunately. Um, but it, yeah, it's um, 
it's definitely uh, the kind of the the science of computing technologies. It's like information theory. So it's been very predominant in the 20th century, of course. And I guess isn't information theory characterized a lot by uh, signal receptivity? Yeah, the, uh, the sort of classic um, uh, information theory has to do with um, um, analyzing the um, the probability um, that um, underlies uh, the possibility of uh, receiving messages. Um, so, in like in order to send a message with a certain quantity of, of uh, information, you have to have uh, uh, a, uh, a signal that is capable of distinguishing you know, that much information. Um, so like, a, um, like if, if, you have, if you're sending the result of a coin flip, um, you have to have a, a signal that can distinguish two different states that can be received at the other end. Um, Right, and then and then it uh, the more um, different possible states you um, want to be able to transmit, then the more um, uh, capacity you have to have in the uh, signal in order to be able to transmit them, um, and that's the sort of um, simple uh, explanation of, of the idea of information theory. Um, but obviously, it's much more um, detailed and, and developed than that. One thing I did want to ask about was about the the splitting of progress into, um, and a kind of like um, a a um, psychology of progress in which, depending on the, your perceived position in relation to it, it's it kind of creates a um, an offset such that um, there's there is there is the individual who is like been moved past by the feigned uh, pro progress of, of technology versus, I guess, in the previous era of, um, of technological psychology, I guess I could say that there was a sense of like um, Im imminentness that there was with the uh, progress of technology, that technical progress, because it was this continuous evolution of technical elements contained a kind of optimism, which was a kind of universalism, which kind of makes sense with the the Enlightenment era, I suppose. Yeah. So the the earlier um, ideology of progress, the eighteenth century ideology of progress, um, um, it relies on this sort of unified um, continuous development. Whereas in the nineteenth century, because we no longer have that. Um, continuous development, we have uh, instead this uh, split of the notion of progress, um, where progress becomes something, um, uh, um, on the one hand, it's it's considered, you know, you know, in developing the wealth of the, of the nation and, and so on. Um, but then on the other hand, it's um, putting people out of work and it's, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's perceived as a threat. So um, there's these two aspects of progress that are both um, experienced at the same time. Uh, by different people. It seems like there's a um, a theory of kind of a progressive mass psychology of technical objects that kind of is embedded into his theory of the evolution of technical objects here, which is I, I didn't I didn't really see this coming. He's he's full always full of surprises. He puts more and more and more into into this um, all the time. You know, 
I, the whole, the idea of like the optimism of the continuity um, and the kind of um, moving past that optimism kind of shows a whole psychodynamic kind of progression um, on top of the, on top of the, the world of technical objects. It's just kind of interesting. But anyway, I have a lot of thoughts about this, but they're probably going to be clarified in the next paragraphs. So, oh yeah, and one more thing. Um, what what do you think about medicine and surgery, um, which because it sticks close to like individual conditions, kind of subverts the the double double edged sort of progress for the for the eighteenth and um, for the um, for the post post is it it's the it's the it's the technological, the cybernetic, the post enlightenment that has this double, this splitting of progress in two, right? Um, but what what is it with medicine and surgery that is somewhat somewhat of an exception to this, and why? I think that's an interesting question. Yeah, as, as I understand it, it's um, it's because um, um, because medicine and surgery. Um, in, in medicine and surgery, the human individual is not replaced by a machine uh, in the 19th century. You don't have, um, you know, surgical machines or something like that replacing surgeons. Um, you, you instead, you, you have the, the progress, what progress there is, um, it takes the form of uh, perfection of, of elements, you know, better scalpels, better, um, uh, so the, the introduction of the germ theory of disease um, leads to better um, hygiene um, in uh, medical practice. Um, Things like that. So you have this sort of incremental development, which makes um, uh, you know medical professionals, uh, you know doctors and and surgeons have this um, uh, awareness of progress or this feeling of progress, this feeling of um, more in increasing um, capability, rather than having this idea of uh, you know this double double sided um, idea of progress that appears in uh, in the realm of uh, industrial technology. I wonder if this can be generalized as um, if if the optimism of of the continuity related to this continu this this kind of the um, the the evolution of the elements um, being kind of individual individualized per per technician or per craftsman. I I wonder if um, actually I think I, I my sentence is getting away from me here. But I wonder if this can be kind of generalized, I suppose, to to um, kind of uh, whether whether it is the case that life life sciences or life rather life techniques are um, the the sense of optimism is extended beyond what would, what would otherwise be the case with industrial technologies, like um, as a kind of general rule of of historical progression, or if this is just kind of an accident of the particular evolution of medical technology in, in this period. Yeah, I think I, I think I understand. Um, I would um, suggest that this is not um, a more general um, principle or, or thesis. Um, so for what I'm thinking of uh, as an example is um, uh, genetically modified organisms um, have this similar type of um, dual um, apprehension, I guess you could say, or, or um, take up, you know, you have on the one hand, um, they're presented as, um, 
you know, they're going to solve world hunger. It's uh, going to produce all this um, great uh, agricultural um, progress and so on. Um, and then on the other hand, you have um, all sorts of, um, I mean, uh, going to extremes, you have, you know, conspiracy theories about, about genetically modified organisms, but then there are also people that, um, you know, have, uh, whose livelihoods are being displaced by genetically modified organisms. So it, um, it has that same type of dual, um, uh, you know, two-faced um, development uh, as um, industrial machinery had in the 19th century. Hmm. So it could be that um, that to, that today um, um, techniques of life uh, or techniques of of um, medicine and um, health the techniques of health have become this kind of double-sided progress with which are can anxiety provoking to some rather than being just a just optimistic like they had maintained their kind of oasis of optimism um, where in into the 18, 18th and 19th centuries I suppose when when the, when the more industrial uh, techniques had had lost that optimism. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, this is something, and you know, maybe we could tie in as well, like you know, anti-vax, um, uh, you know, conspiracy theories, um, as uh, um, you know, the the other side of uh, progress in um, in medicine. Um, so, um, and any of these, a lot of these developments that we see in you know, the last you know, fifty or so years of uh, of medicine, um, life sciences, health, and, and things like that have all um, been um, sort of taken up into ideology in this double-sided way, where you have, um, on the one hand, this uh, you know progress um, ideology, and then the other side, you know, this uh, um, threat ideology. Um, so I think uh, I think it's right to say that um, the the same type of uh, um, process as happened with industrial technology in the 19th century is it, it has been going on for um, life sciences and, and medicine in the you know late 20th and, and early 21st century. So would someone like to read the next paragraph? I think we can uh, go on. I can read some more um, if that's all right. Yeah, go ahead. Progress is henceforth thought of as cosmic at the level of its overall results. It is thought abstractly, intellectually, in a doctrinal manner. Progress is no longer thought by craftsmen, but by mathematicians who conceive of progress as, a, as man taking possession of nature. Beginning with the Saint Sansimonians, this idea of progress starts to support techno, to technocratism. technocratism. An idea of progress that was conceived and desired substitutes itself for the impression of progress as something undergone. You prove the individual who thinks progress is not the same individual as the one who works, except in some rather rare cases, such as the case of the printer and lithographer, who have, who have mostly remained craftsmen. Even in these cases, for those who think deeply about its nature, the advent of the machine is expressive of an aspiration for the transformation of social structures. One could say that work and technicity were linked in the 18th century through the experience, a, a prouvé, of elementary progress. 
Conversely, the 20th century brings about the disjunction of the conditions for the intellection of progress and for the experience of the internal rhythms of work resulting from the same progress. 19th century man does not experience progress as a worker, he experiences it as an engineer or a user. In fact, the engineer, the man of the machine, becomes the organizer of the ensemble made up of workers and machines. Progress is grasped as a movement that manifests itself through its results, rather than as progress in itself understood as the ensemble of operations that constitute it, as the elements that actualize it, and as being valid for a large number of people that would be coextensive with humanity. Right, so this is uh, the one side of the, the, the two aspects of, uh, of progress in the 19th century. So the one side is the, the engineer um, um, you know, developing this ideology of uh, technocracy or of, of progress um, through the sort of rationalization of society um, and um, the integration of, um, or the, the, you know, the development of industrialism and integration of society into the um, uh, industrial age or industrial um, mode of life. I think it's interesting that he chose to use um, the English original term for engineer. And I wonder how much the, the discourse of engineering is a kind of anglophonic discourse or why he chose to use English to refer to the engineer. Yeah, I think I think the role of uh, the engineer is a little bit different in France for, compared to England, um, um, where in France you have these um, um, these big state schools um, like Ecole des Mines. Um, um, so engineers um, or the the profession of the engineer is more integrated into um, sort of public works, things like bridges and and roads and and um, mines and things like that. Um, Whereas in in England you have more um, the like the factory level engineer or um, you know, railway engineer or something like that uh, uh, the engineer as a private individual, um, so I think that might be what he's pointing to here is that um, uh, the engineer the, the type of engineer that he's um, that he's thinking of is is the engineer who is um, uh, working in an industrial uh, you know private environment rather than um, for states, uh, public works. Earlier, he used the word human engineering uh, in a different sense than what we are used to, I guess. Right, where was that, uh, where he used the word uh, or the phrase human engineering? I think uh, it was about uh, two sections before this one, as far as I remember. I'll try to find it. Right. Yeah, I don't remember that specifically, but um, um, yeah, I mean, the, I think the term human engineering is a 20th century term, uh, so it wouldn't have um, existed at the at the time that he's writing about here. But um, he does he points in this section or in this paragraph, he points to the the way that um, the sort of engineering ideology um, incorporates the human being into um, the industrial process. So. Um, the, the engineer doesn't just design better machines, um, but you know incorporates humans into the process in a in a better way. Oh, uh, Xiao has uh, added the the page number in the chat here, so it's page one seventeen. If anyone wants to look that up, 
uh, right, used as an original English term. Right. Yeah. So and it's uh, tied to cybernetics. So I think yeah, I think it's um, you know a, a term that's newly introduced at the time that he's writing in the fifties. It seems to be that the um, that that this difference between this this en engineering sense of progress is it's kind of teleological limitations that it's results oriented at the expense of other characteristics. Is that is that a good super succinct summation of at least the last part of the paragraph? Yeah, I think um, why he's characterizing as results oriented is um, because the the this engineering ideology um, you know points to progress as you know um, more so many uh, tons of coal produced or or um, tons of iron or or yards of linen or whatever it is. Um, it's just it's um, you know technical uh, technical progress means producing more and more goods and you know uh, expanding the wealth of society, um, but the actual um, organization of the production process itself um, is not really um, considered in that idea of progress. So the fact that you have you know uh, nine year olds ch uh, children um, you know working fifteen hour days or whatever it is to produce all these um, wonderful goods. Um, is not really uh, considered as like an aspect of this progress. Uh, so I think that's what he's pointing to um, when he talks about being uh, results oriented. And what's sacrificed is, I guess, specific. Probably, it seems like most keyed in on when he talks about the the rhythm, the rhythms of work. I think is what's sacrificed here, right? By this kind of results orientation. Yeah. So whereas in a in a art, artisanal production or craftsman production, the, the worker has control of the work process. They, uh, um, you know, they control the pace of work and, and you know, moving from one task to another. And um, they have uh, a sort of uh, overall um, picture of the work process and, uh, you know, integrate all the different elements at the level of an individual human being. Um, in an industrial production, you have um, the, the worker is subordinated to the machine, to the, the rhythm of the machine. Um, so the worker does one repetitive task over and over again at whatever pace the machine is set at, which uh, is controlled by the factory owner and not by the worker. Um, so the the rhythm and the the gestures and um, and the and the, again the worker has no knowledge of the overall process of uh, of production. They only know the one um, limited task that they have to uh, perform repetitively. Um, so all of that is uh, with all of all of the um, control that the artisanal worker had over the process is lost um, uh, in the industrial process. I think we can go on to the next paragraph if someone would like to read. I go again. Uh, indeed, the poets of the end of the first half of the 19th century keenly felt progress to be the general march of humanity with its charge of risk and anxiety. With this progress, there is something of an immense collective adventure, of a voyage, and even of a migration toward another world. This progress contains at once something triumphant and crepuscular. It is perhaps the world that Vigny sees written above the cities in La Maison du Berger, the shepherd's house. The feeling of ambivalence toward the machine can be found in the evocation of the locomotive and the compass, the former La Maison du Berger, Berger uh, the latter in La Bouteille de à la Mer, the bottle in the sea, 
The latter poem shows how Vigny felt about the transient and perhaps transitory because contradictory nature of progress in the 19th century. This unfinished, incomplete idea of progress contains a message for posterity. It cannot fill, fulfill itself within itself. One of the aspects of Les Destinées, Destinies, is to accept living within this moment of technical evolution. Vigny made it accurate and significant by understanding that technical evolution could not satisfy itself by way of itself, that it couldn't simply close in on itself. So this ideology of progress um, it has a sort of um, home, you could say, with the engineer, um, but then it's also reflected in poetry here. Um, so um, uh, yeah, so Xiao has, has um, put in the chat here the question, what does satisfaction mention here entail? Um, uh, let's see, satisfaction. Um, do you mean in, like in the last um, sentence here where it's uh, the idea of uh, accept, to accept living within the moment of technical evolution? Is that what you're pointing to? Oh yeah, right. Uh, yeah, the, the last bit, um, technical evolution could not satisfy itself by way of itself. It couldn't simply close in on itself. Um, yeah, that's uh, a little bit obscure to me. Um, I think what he's pointing to here is the idea that um, technical progress is, um, um, as he points out a little bit earlier, it's something transitory. Um, so there, there is um, um, maybe what, the, what this is pointing to is uh, you have um, a number of economists at this time, um, like Ricardo, um, thought that, uh, and even Adam Smith a little bit earlier, um, they thought that um, technical progress and, and you know, economic growth was a, a temporary phenomenon. Um, um, you know, whereas today, economists tend to, to think of growth as just like the natural state of the economy and um, something that can continue forever um, somehow. Um, uh, Adam Smith and, and Ricardo thought of growth as something that was a temporary phenomenon and um, that eventually um, and uh, you know fairly soon uh, there would be an end to growth and uh, technical development. So I think maybe something like this is what he's pointing to, the idea that um, uh, technical progress is a, is a temporary phenomenon like you know in the early 19th century we're living in this era of technical progress that um, won't last very long. And so we only, we can sort of celebrate it and, and live through it now, but um, it's not uh, it's not a permanent state of the world. Is there something going on maybe around a kind of distinction between means and ends in the sense that like technical evolution can produce a kind of, it can fold back in on itself and, and constantly kind of hone and refine the means of accomplishing things, but that society needs to somehow sit outside of that in order to sort of define social goals and, uh, you know, sort of have a have a kind of ethos for society that somehow sits outside of, of technique. Like, I just think the, there's other sort of instrumental theories of technology that sort of pitch things in that way. I realize that's not, maybe not historically accurate, but I get a sense that that's sort of what's also going on here. Yeah, that's possible. That's what he's pointing to as well. Um, the, the idea that, um, technical progress is not an end in itself. Um, it needs um, some sort of end, um, you know, that for which progress is uh, is uh, done or, or performed. So, you know, if we're trying to improve life, then we need to have an idea of what it is to, to have a good life and, and how we're getting closer to that. Um, uh, so that it could be that he's pointing to that um, 
I guess, incompleteness or uh, unsatisfactoriness of, of technical progress um, in itself. Okay, so um, I can read the next paragraph. A third aspect of the notion of technical pro uh, progress emerges with the repercussions of the internal regulation of technical individuals regarding technical ensembles and through these regarding humanity. The second stage, that which corresponds to the arrival of a new wave of technic technics at the level of individuals was characterized by the ambivalence of progress, by the dual situation of man with regard to the machine and by the production of alienation. This alienation grasped by Marxism as having its root in the relation of the worker with the means of production does not only derive in our view from a relation of property or non-property between worker and the instruments of work. Beneath this juridical and economic relation exists an even more profound relation, that of the continuity between the human individual and the technical individual, or of the discontinuity between these two beings. The reason why alienation arises is not solely because in the 19th century, the human individual who works is no longer the owner of his means of production. Whereas in the 18th century, the craftsman was the owner of his instruments of production and of his tools. Alienation does indeed emerge the moment the worker is no longer the owner of his means of production, but it, it does not emerge solely because of this rupture in the link of property. It also emerges outside of all collective relation to the means of production at the physiological and psychological level of the individual, properly speaking. The alienation of man in relation to the machine does not only have a socioeconomic cause, uh, socioeconomic sense, it also has a, a physio-psychological sense. The machine no longer prolongs the corporeal schema, neither for the workers nor for those who possess the machines. Bankers whose social role has been exalted by mathematicians, such as the Saint-Simonians and Auguste Comte, are as alienated in their relation to the machine as the members of the proletariat. What we mean by this is that there is no need to presuppose a master-slave dialectic in order to account for the existence of alienation within the proprietor class. The relation of property with respect to the machine con contains as much alienation as the relation of non-property, even if it corresponds to a very different social state. On either side of the machine, above and below, the worker, who is uh, a man of elements, and the industrial boss, who is a man of ensembles, both lack a true relation with the individualized technical object in the form of the machine. Labor and capital are two modes of being, where one is as incomplete as the other with respect to the technical object and the technicity contained in industrial organization. Their apparent symmetry does not at all mean that the union of capital and of labor reduces alienation. The alienation of capital is not alienation with respect to labor, with respect to the contact with the world, as in the master-slave dialectic, but rather with respect to the technical object. The same goes for labor. What labor lacks is not what capital possesses, and what capital lacks is not what labor possesses. Labor possesses the intelligence of elements, capital possesses the intelligence of ensembles, but it is not by combining the intelligence of elements with the intelligence of ensembles that one can arrive at the intelligence of the intermediary and non-mixed being, that is the technical individual. Element, individual, and ensemble follow each other along a temporal line. The man of the element is late with respect to the individual, but the man of ensembles who has not understood the individual is in no way ahead of his time with respect to it. He tries to enclose the present technical individual in the structure of an ensemble belonging to the past. Labor and capital are both late with respect to the technical individual that is a depository of technicity. The technical individual is not of the same era as the labor that announces it and, and the capital that, that frames it. Yeah, so there's, um, I think there's a lot in this paragraph. Um, um, so he brings up um, the, uh, um, so the master-slave dialectic that he points to here. This is um, a chapter in um, Hegel's Phenomena Phenomenology of Spirit. Um, um, and it was um, 
sort of re reappropriated um, by a lot of 20th century French philosophers as um, a sort of um, basis for like a Hegelian Marxism or or something like that. Um, but um, um, he he's rejecting this um, this model of, of the relationship between um, capital and labor, um, and he's uh, introducing this third term, um, the individual, the technical individual, um, as being uh, um, the the intermediary but not mixed being. So it's not so it's not some a mix between uh, labor and capital. It's um, a level of reality that. Um, is not grasped by either labor or capital. The, the laborer is at the level of the elements and capital is at the level of the ensemble. Um, and then there's this level of the individual which is not grasped by either side. So is this um, a, a critique of, um, a critique of Marxism or um, a comment on alienation in relation to the master-slave dialectic, or maybe I'm I'm trying to I've been trying to wrap my head around this paragraph and how this functions. Um, is, is it a critique of of Hegel of Marxism? Is it a kind of integration of Mar Marxist theory in some respects of in regards alienation? Um, like what? How do you think this this paragraph works within? uh the the various positions of um because i mean it, it seems to be that that if if the alienation of capital is not in respect to labor but with respect to the technical object that this could be seen as like subversive towards like uh some some marxist arguments right so i'm wondering if if how y'all would characterize the relation of this this perspective on technical objects and capital in relation to um, the tradition of Marxism. Yeah, I think there's, um, I guess you could say like multiple layers of, of uh, sort of what's going on in this paragraph. Um, so on the one, sort of maybe the first layer is uh, he's criticizing this Hegelian Marxism, or this um, appropriation of the the master-slave dialectic as a as a model for the relationship between the proletariat and capital. Um, so, if if you take up this model, then you would have um, the idea that uh, um, the proletariat is alienated from technical reality because uh, because it lacks possession uh, or, or this um, um, uh, overall knowledge of the technical reality. And then capital is alienated from technical reality because it doesn't have this immediate contact with it the way the laborer does. Um, so he's rejecting that model. Um, uh, so he, yeah, he rejects this master-slave uh, model of uh, of this relation. Um, but I think he's also um, uh, he wants to uh, incorporate something from Marxism uh, beyond this model. So the idea that um, uh, this idea of alienation, uh, the way that technical reality as something uh, human, uh, you know, created by human beings, um, is um, experienced as something alien, is, is something outside of human reality. Um, he wants to incorporate that idea. Um, but then it's ultimately, I think, maybe like the third level, um, 
I think it is a criticism of Marxism uh, itself rather than just this uh, Hegelian uh, form of Marxism using the master-slave dialectic. Um, so by introducing this third um, uh, level of technical reality, the, the technical individual, um, as something that is uh, lacking to both uh, aspects, to both um, sides of the, the labor and capital conflict, um, that's, uh, it's introducing something uh, so his argument here is that uh, Marxism is uh, uh, lacks this third element or doesn't doesn't grasp this third element, um, and uh, so it's a criticism of Marxism uh, as such and not just this Hegelian form of Marxism. It is interesting that um, that the the master slave dialectic that is kind of um, a way to a logic a logic of desire and work where where the desire of the master for the the product produced by the slave is what's the important aspect as well as the kind of life or death death um, con in implications of the relation so it but um but there's this particular kind of like craftsman um, and consumption crafting and consumption relation that um, is kind of uh, that is important for the doctrine of recognition, I guess, in in the phenomenology of spirit in Hegel's master-slave dialectic. So this makes sense with his previous writings that the kind of um, the crowd, the artisan, the artisan um, um, mode of production has kind of seeded towards a technical mode. So it kind of fits in with his previous remarks, I guess, on this subject. That this would be um, that it's no it's it's no longer just this logic of of production and and consumption, but something which um, the technical object has um, has a a certain alienation which supersedes just this kind of like lack of like the the that work the endless work you know the alienation alienation of endless work for instance of the slave to the master i think you can uh another way you can pick up that thread i think that's great another way you can pick up the thread is to say that marx was very much focused on de-skilling in the context of mechanization and i think that this you know material like this or ideas like this really complicate that to sort of say uh it's you know both the capitalist and the worker understand that under, are, are led to understand the individual as an economic unit right like like a jet whether it's an embodied gesture that can be done more efficiently or a commodity that comes out the other end there's a kind of process of individualization going on there that covers over or as an economic relation that obscures or covers over a technical relation which is much more about kind of how a body fits together with a machine in terms of like thinking about design or something like that right and so simon Dow, allows you to sort of push past um, a kind of narrative about de-skilling and, and be able to start to say more complicated things about where domination asserts itself in the overall kind of technical ensemble. Yeah, I think um, actually um, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce's critiques of, of Hegel's, um, Hegel's perspective on progress or, or evolution can be kind of prescient here when it comes to technical evolution because he he kind of he he introduces like a three three categories of evolution 
and criticizes Hegel as being kind of stuck at the second, where the first is a purely fortuitous relation of evolution. The second is a mechanical kind of process of evolution. And the third is what he calls um, evolutionary love or agapeistic. And I've been trying to kind of piece together, piece together from Simone's and these these kind of psychological incentives that would would call for something transcending a kind of mechanical evolutionary perspective. And it, it's interesting uh, to kind of think about that in coordination with this very kind of direct critique of, of Hegel here by Simone Den. I'm interested to know where where Peirce uh, talks about that, just, just as a matter of a bibliographic reference. And I guess the other thing I would say is that like I think you'll find you may find answers to your questions in when if if and when we we turn our t turn attention to uh, his the new stuff the form of information and light or light and form of information and individuation or whatever it is the, the sort of his more sort of um, psychosocial account of um, of I don't know of, of society or whatever and I assume in relation to technology in certain significant ways. The name of the purse um, article is called Evolutionary Love, so it's easy to remember. It's a good, it's a good one too. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, I think um, it's also probably worth um, mentioning that there are some of the, the aspects that uh, Simon Don is pointing to here um, in his criticism of Marxism are actually, um, I think, contained in Marx's works um, already, um, but they weren't sort of um, highlighted, I guess, until later, until like the second half of the 20th century. So I'm thinking of um, um, Marx uh, introduced this distinction between what he calls formal subsumption and um, real subsumption. So um, in, in a historical development of capitalism, you have um, the uh, uh, formal subsumption of the worker under capital. So the, the worker, um, this is um, um, primarily in uh, housework um, in, I guess, the late 18th century. Um, so you had workers um, in their own homes uh, spinning cotton or whatever. Um, they would the, they were um, sort of brought under capital, where you had a a, a putter out, um, a capitalist who would um, um, give the workers uh, raw cotton, and then uh, the workers would would spin it, and then um, the the putter out would buy it back from them or pay them for the the work they've done. Um, but in the early stages, the the capitalist has no direct control over the production process. So it's only um, at the level of uh, of uh, finances or or of, uh, of legal property that the capitalist controls the whole process. Um, and the workers uh, work in their own homes and, and you know on their own time and so on. Um, and it's only later on, uh, you know, later in the in the 18th century or, or beginning of the 19th century that the capitalist um, uh, brings about real subsumption where the capitalist has control of the production process itself by bringing the workers into um, a, a centralized workshop rather than working in their own homes. They, they work in uh, the capitalist workshop and then uh, the, the capitalist uh, controls the production process itself. So I think um, this uh, distinction is um, uh, something like what Simone was pointing to here of, of, at the level of the technical individual. Um, um, it's uh, um, what Marx is, is talking about is not just the juridical property, um, as Simone Don 
says here, but also the, the control of the production process itself. Um, and this is a, a, an aspect that, you know, in, in the late 19th and early 20th century, the first uh, maybe 75 years of, of Marxism was not really taken up very much. Um, and then it's only in the last half of the 20th century that you begin to have um, labor process theory and um, study of the, the conflicts over the control of the labor process um, within the Marxist tradition. Yeah, that's interesting. I I hope to some at some point become become more up to date with contemporary perspectives on Marxism, which I've informed have become much more um, uh, coherent and organized since like the nineteen eighties. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's been um, you know new uh, new documents that have been published. Uh, you know, different um, uh, unpublished works by Marx um, or and. Um, you know, some that were edited after his death um, in ways that that um, you know can be can be questioned um, that you know the, that have been republished and so on. So there's been um, you know more uh, there, there's material that is available today that wouldn't have been available when Simonon was writing this. Um, and uh, um, yeah, Marxism, of course, is a is a tradition, uh, a living tradition that that you know develops through time rather than just a uh, a static uh, sort of doctrine. Um, so there's been, yeah, there's been theoretical development since uh, Simondon's time as well that uh, that he obviously didn't have available to him. Although I think I think a lot of the, um, especially for the the French uh, studiers of Marx in the er, in the early twentieth century, the um, the the eighteen forty four manuscripts I believe was a big a big thing that changed. Um, perspectives on Marxism in in relation to his criticisms of Hegel and specifically in relation to alienation, which became much more um, coordinated towards Hegel's, Hegel's conception because of what Marx had written in the 1844 manuscripts. This is what I've heard from um, studying the, the early, early 20th century Marxists. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's right. Um... The, the 1844 manuscripts were only published in, I want to say, 1920s. Um, and uh, um, yeah, they, they have a much more um, Hegelian uh, or Feuerbachian um, sort of theoretical orientation compared to the, the later stuff. Um, and, uh, and the concept of alienation plays a, a much bigger role as well. So um, you had um, uh, a sort of uh, tradition that that took up those uh, 1844 manuscripts uh, in, in Germany and France, especially, um, and uh, sort of, um, I guess, brought about this idea of a sort of humanist Marxism, um, you know, Marxism that would be centered around the idea of alienation and human uh, reality of, uh, you know, reincorporating, um, um, you know, the alienated um, aspects of existence into human reality. Um, um, so I think that might be the sort of background that he's thinking about here. And uh, that tradition would not have really um, looked at the labor process and um, the at the level of the technical individual. Um, uh, so that's, that's I think, why he's uh, pointing to that as a, uh, something missing from Marxism. It is, um, it's because he, he has that um, tradition in mind. Sorry, just a question. Uh, in this paragraph, like um, 
there's uh, the the going beyond corporal schema part is quite clear and um it's also pretty fair when he was extending beyond the point about social economic relations and talking about the alienation having so much to do with the physio psychological sense and it's it's pretty straightforward when i think about the worker's perspective on that but i do have um little bit of challenge thinking about how does the alienation from the as perspective of physio-psychological um, that applies to the industrial boss or the other side of the worker? Like how did you guys um, comprehend that? Like what, is, like what is it for the industrial boss side when it comes to the physio-psychological aspect? Is this like what 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 is important for the um for the 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 um the kind of equation of capital when it comes to not the worker but or the well how do how does the technical object um relate to the manager or not rather than the worker or the um I guess the boss I don't know if if there's a technical term for the boss there probably is. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if there's a technical term for the boss per se. I mean, I comprehended it a lot like based on the term of corporeal schema per se. Like, um, again, sort of caught in the thought about agency, where it's not quite a bit about um, just ownership of instrument or the means of production, but more even to uh, the relation of human with machine, where it's no longer a bodily extension for the worker, but where the worker has become a accessory of sorts and I was kind of comprehending the physio-psychological sense of alienation he was mentioning from that end on um, uh, yeah the, the human is kind of like a merely accessory at some point um, but uh, uh, I don't know how to reframe the question as what, what is that version of alienation? What is that version of physio-psychological alienation um, for the owner or for the capital ensemble organizer, industrial boss person? Right, I, I think this is incredibly interesting here because without the, the kind of implicit psycho psychology of, the, the, of desire in relation to um, the production goals that cannot be uh, you know, like nothing is good enough kind of aspect of it, which is is kind of is really a big part of the the kind of Hegelian and the the, the early twentieth century um, Marxist slash Hegelian kind of perspective on alienation. Um, with without that um, that aspect, how how do we kind of envision the role of the the master in the technical process or in relation of the technical object with the craftsman or is this kind of an is this category eliminated or is it maintained in what in what regards do we still have like the psychology of desire as playing a role in the technical object and the, the evolution of the technical object and, and capital i guess if you want to throw that in there yeah, I think what he's pointing to, um, so this is right at the bottom of 133, um, where he points to the, the physiological and psychological level, um, um, or you know, alienation um, in the in the physio-psychological sense. Um, I think what he's pointing to here um, is that the the owner or um, 
the the manager is not um, uh, is not at the level of the technical individual who is actually performing the work um, compared to the the craftsmen of the of the pre-industrial era. Um, so the technical reality is is not um, uh, doesn't have that same um, sort of immediate uh, corporeal reality that it, that it did in the 18th century. Uh, so even in, even though the the capitalist or the manager um, uh, has control over the the technical production process and and, and you know, dominates the process, they don't have um, uh, they aren't integrated into it in the in the same way that the craftsmen of the 18th century was. Um, and in this uh, immediate corporeal way, they they have a, an abstract intellectual representation of the technical process and of the the ensemble that they uh, organize, but they don't have um, a uh, a corporeal uh, grasp of uh, the technical process. Right. I mean, I also wonder if it's a matter of sovereignty. Um, like I saw, I don't know what's a better word for it, but. Um, the earlier form of techniques, a lot of the time, are very ge geographic specific. Like you have ceramics at an area where the soil actually fits um, to have clay that you can do so, or um, like metalworks having to, like somewhere that produces copper metalwork, have to have like a mine nearby. Um, but I'm one. Like this is this is the only case that I can bring it into reality and think about it where uh even the owner would even if the owner has derived out of someone as a craftsman and have more um knowledge understanding and economical means that by this stage of the alienation uh, a business can no longer be self contained or maybe more commonly not geographically specific um where like everything is a lot more dependent. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that that's probably um, another aspect of, of what he's pointing to here, because um, we saw earlier when he's discussing um, this transition uh, from the technical individual to the technical ensemble. He looked. He saw. He um, he pointed to the way that. Um, uh, in the sort of thermodynamic stage of of industrialism, you have this integration into railway networks and uh, um, and this um, sort of broader scale of uh, technical development. So it's not just um, you know one uh, isolated factory that produces um, nails or whatever it is. It's um, you know the factory is integrated into a network of railways that connect mines and uh, ship. Um, you know, ports and, and shipping facilities, and, and you know, it, it's this worldwide network of uh, of production and distribution uh, that the factory is integrated into. Um, so the the capitalist um, is uh, the organizes production in relation to that worldwide network, but they don't have, um, but that, that that organization is is um, carried out at the level of uh, like an intellectual process. Um, you know, a representation um, of you know the 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 market conditions and and the uh, you know uh, transportation facilities and logistics and so on, um, rather than uh, a corporeal um, grasp of uh, the production process, which you know the owner might not even know anything about. Um, they might not really know 
how the production is is carried out. Uh, they don't really need to know. They they just have to organize the the network in which production is integrated. Yeah, that's very fair. That reminds me of like an extreme example of I know there's a plastic injection molding company in Canada that had an early patent for, um, yeah, pr pretty much like plastic injection molding uh, pipes and things like that. And their equipment is so specific to the point that North America does not produce the type of lubrication they need. So one time they had a delay on uh, a certain lubricants that they needed for uh, uh, like um, a batch of work. And um, so I think they paid like $50,000 for someone to go get the lubricants in Asia and then have someone uh, drive it uh, specifically to an airport, uh, human guarded by another person and having this bottle of lubricant transported within 24 hours from the point of ordering. Yeah, so that's like when you compare um an artisanal production process where everything is all um, integrated in one workshop and, and the, the craftsman has um, mastery over every aspect of the technique. And when you compare that to this um, uh, factory that relies on um, you know, lubrication from um, halfway around the world uh, and you know, has to um, do this sort of elaborate um, um, sort of mission to, to retrieve this lubricant uh, in an emergency. It's a completely different way of organizing the production process. Yeah, on that note, like who looks forward to 5G? I'm ambivalent. <laughs> I have more bandwidth than I need. I'm genuinely so scared of a hacker hacking agricultural facilities and then a world fund like fall into a hunger. Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. People are pretty security obsessed these days. So there's probably a lot of redundant systems that are designed to kind of prevent that type of thing. I mean, I am just imagining this, but I, I hope there are. <laughs> I mean, after Toyota, like, didn't even improve their electrical brake system and have so many people accidentally die just because the gamma ray has hit their system or like same things happening in planes where... Uh, they have met uh, gamma rays just randomly traveling through Earth, hitting the control system as well, and having it drop in 2,000 feet, and also meeting like completely, uh, I don't know, not quite detail-oriented people, writing manuals for planes. Um, yeah, hard to know how to feel when even agricultural and tractors and uh, irrigation systems and everything um, will be controlled via internet instead of ethernet yeah there's some uh like scary stuff when you start looking into some of the details of how infrastructure is managed and like you have um like a um i don't know like a um, a dam operation or whatever is uh it'll be connected to the internet and it, it'll be like hard coded the password will be hard coded into the machine so it's not even possible to change it and um like uh if anyone, you know, hackers can can get access to that password, they'll be able to control a dam remotely over the internet. Um, and uh, you know, there's been a few instances of uh, apparent cyber attacks on infrastructure, um, uh, just because you know infrastructure tends to not have um, the type of security that like uh, an office computer would have or something like that. Like it, it tends to be 
very basic type of security. And then if it's connected to the internet, it makes it very vulnerable. Um, so having uh, all of our sort of daily activities and um, infrastructure and everything all integrated into the internet uh, just makes it all um, that much more vulnerable. Um, uh, actually, I, I'm going to post a, a book in the chat in just a second. Um, while we do that, should I read the um, the last bit here because to the end of the section? Yeah, we're just uh, about at time, so go ahead. The dialogue between capital and labor is false because it is of the past. The collectivization of the means of production cannot achieve a reduction of alienation on its own. It can only achieve this reduction if it is the precondition for the acquisition of the intelligence of the individuated technical object by the human individual. This relation between the human individual and the technical individual is the most difficult to form. It presupposes a technical culture, which introduces the capacity of different attitudes rather than that of work and of action. Work corresponding to the intelligence of the elements and action to the intelligence of ensembles. What work and action have in common is the predominance of finality over causality. In both cases, the effort is directed at a certain result to be obtained. The employment of means finds itself in the position of minority with respect to the result. The schema of action matters less than the result of the action. In the technical individual, however, this, dis this, dis this disequilibrium between causality and finality disappears. Viewed from the outside, the machine is made in order to obtain a certain result. But the more the technical being becomes individualized, the more this external finality effaces itself for the benefit of the internal coherence of functioning, the functioning is finalized with respect to itself before being so in its relation with the external world. Such is the automate, automatism of the machine, and such is its self-regulation. There is at the level of regulations of functioning, and not only a causality or finality, in self-regulated functioning, all causality has a sense of finality and all finality a sense of causality. I'd say this is kind of, um, this kind of talking about the, um, or bringing, bringing to, to center the, the conjunction of cause and effect into a unity of, of a mach machine, right, in a sense that there's a kind of presupposed kind of um, way that we talk about cause as we, we, we think of it as a proximal cause, such that we find the most exact immediate cause for something. And we, we disregard finality as a kind of causal relation, uh, the, kind of, the kind of thing we think about like ultimate purpose or ends of something. Um, we tend to separate from questions of cause and effect because we we think of cause and effect as itself mechanical in a certain um, a certain kind of syllogistic way that you just have one cause one effect like a stimulus response mechanism. But there's this long tradition of thinking of finality and causality in the same breath, going back to the final the final causes of Aristotle, for instance. And the talk of teleolo teleology, which Simone's in references quite quite a lot in this in these sections, so it's comfortable for him to kind of put it 
really nice and close together with finality and causality here and and talk about the the mediator here being the technical the technical individual if i'm correct right yeah, I think he's also um, pointing to um, what we saw in the first part uh, of the the concretization of the individual. Um, so, when an individual, a technical individual, becomes uh, concrete, um, its its functioning is integrated in in such a way that it's not um, it's not just um, sort of a bundle of, of components that each has a certain uh, finality to it. Um, Instead, they're all all the different components, all of their processes are integrated into um, a self-regulating functioning. Um, so that um, rather than so rather than having a technical object that is produced for the sake of a certain end uh, external to the, the technical object, instead you have a technical object that um, that functions to maintain itself. It's a, a self-regulating technical object. Um, so that's, uh, I think, what he's pointing to here as well. Okay, so it sounds like um, we've uh, sort of exhausted the uh, the content of this uh, section um, for now. So I'm going to just shut off the recording, uh, and we'll pick up at section two next time. Oh, and um, if if y'all y'all haven't already been informed, the recordings are going up on YouTube in the Simon Simundin reading group. Um, YouTube page, which is new and, and fun to listen to. If you miss a session, it will be uploaded, hopefully in short time, if I if I can get it um, going quickly enough. So hopefully this, this session will be posted soon as well. And and I am definitely personally going to review over it and and meditate a little bit on some of these themes, which which are always more a little bit more complex than I think they're going to be. Yeah, and thanks again, uh, 61, for, for editing the uh, recordings. Um, if you could post a, a link to uh, the YouTube channel in, uh, in the, the channel here, um, that would be great. Um, and I'm just going to shut off the recording. So uh, see everyone next week.